Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, John. Hi, John. Uh, thank you. Uh, hi. I see everybody. I see Bethwell. I see Stella. I see many people. Thank you guys for taking time off uh, your busy schedule to come and join us. Uh, if I'm not wrong, Dr. Thoreau has joined us. Doc, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Sorry, I was trying to um, to log in using a different portal and it's working now, so I'm good to go. Thanks. So, uh, so the, the ground rules, uh, team, the ground rules are you can ask Daktari as many questions as you like, but we do we do so through the chat. We, meanwhile, we, we remain on mute throughout his presentation. I normally he's very good at this. He addresses every question in your chat. So let's use the chat. Let's keep, keep our video disabled and uh, also let's keep our microphones on mute. Daktari has done so many sessions for us and I think they are so insightful. And, um, and uh, Daktari, welcome. Asante sana, asante sana. I might not stay with you throughout the call. Um, I might have to step out, but Joe, sure. just moderate for me in case. Joe, are you there? Ah, he'll join us. I'm here, Joe. Morning. Ah, thanks. So Joe, Joe will be there to moderate just in case I step out and then step back. That's sorry, how is the UK this morning? It's good. Sun's out, so uh, can't complain. Thanks. Over to you, Doctor. All right, thanks a lot, John. All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is a uh, this is a really um, I'm in a really privileged position to be doing this and uh, to be doing these webinars because I feel that what we're going through is is unprecedented, and what we have right now is the world um, in a completely different place to where it was at the beginning of this year. So, what we're seeing, what we're experiencing both in the healthcare uh, field and in the outside world is just um, unimaginable. I think if you look at it from perspective of uh, sector to sector, every single sector in the world has been affected. You're talking about education, tourism, transport, logistics, mining, financial services, retail, uh, I could go on and on and on. And never before in our generation or in our lifetime have we seen so many sectors all affected at the same time globally. It's, it's just never been seen. What we have now is a healthcare crisis that has made the world stand still and stand still for so many reasons. Stand still in trying to prevent it, stand still in trying to contain it, stand still and trying to figure out where we need to go from now. Very few governments have figured this out. We can talk about China and what they're doing there. We can talk about what's going on here in Europe and we can talk about what's going on in Africa um, in the course of this conversation. And I find that no two places are the same. So whatever I'm gonna say now, um, number one, needs to be put into the context of what we're experiencing this week because next week is going to be completely different and i'll explain why but also we need to be able to understand that i'm going to try in the beginning i was trying to minimize um the shock and horror of it and then i realized actually you know what i'd rather people saw the worst side and then we get a much better side to that then we just diminish what potentially could happen and then we see disastrous effects so when you look at the local industry, if you look at Kenya, I don't think I've ever seen JKIA um, totally shut down 
ever in my entire lifetime. You know, I think 9-11, the airspaces were closed for a while. When we had the terrorist attacks, same thing, but it's 24, 48 hours. But to have this kind of complete shutdown has got a huge impact. In Mombasa right now, occupancy in hotel rooms have dipped to well below 10. At the beginning of the season, apparently some of the hotels had 80% occupancy. Now they're less than 10%. This is an industry that normally struggles you know, to bounce back. So that's just a little bit of context of our local markets. Global remittances from the US, from the UK, from Europe, from Asia, of, of Kenyans coming, I mean, coming into, the, into Kenya right now have dramatically dipped because this is not just a Kenyan crisis, this is a global crisis. So that's going to affect our economy. Some people are describing this as the worst crisis since World War II. You know, they're talking about Marshall Plan type um, actions to be able to deal with this. Um, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go, but I, got, I read a McKinsey report the other day which estimated that we're going to have at least a 3% drop in GDP at best if we're able to do all the right things, flatten the curve, not have the spike, be able to have the markets return to normal. At worst, you're looking at a GDP dropping about 7 percentage points. What that means in terms of the real world is a very, very, very difficult thing to actually wrap my mind around. So it's affecting us all. So I think today I'm not sure the team that I'm speaking to, I think it's the investment branch. So I'll throw a few numbers out there just to see whether or not we can create or make a little bit of sense around the global impact of what's going on. So why should we care? We should care because um, we're all affected. We don't know how long it's going to last and we don't know how deep it's going to go. And those are the facts. That is undoubtedly um, what everyone is talking about. Nobody right now knows exactly where we're going to go. To put this into context, when I first started these talks um, about 10 days ago, almost two weeks now, the the UK, I always give this example of, <clears throat> I left the UK, I left um, Heathrow, I was flying out of Heathrow, flying to Kenya, and I uh, flew back since then. When I flew out, there were 17 cases documented on February the 28th. As of last night, there were 60,000 cases documented, and that's just in five weeks. And we're not testing enough. We're definitely not testing enough. I think we're only testing potentially um, 10% of our capacity of what we should be testing. So that's the UK. If you look at Kenya, I think on the 12th of March, we had our first case documented. And now what are we, the, the 9th, I think we are sitting at um, 180 plus cases or so. So when you look at those kind of statistics, it may seem like, okay, we're growing at a slower pace, but are we testing? And are we testing enough? Now, the whole thing about testing is trying to be able to get the test kits into the country, get them to the right places, and do the right kind of testing. So it takes a while. So there's always this kind of lag in the beginning. So I'm, I'm telling people, look, we shouldn't have this false sense of security that, well, you know what? In Africa, it's not going as fast. We'll know when we start to test aggressively. At the same time, in the hospitals, we're not seeing the cases showing up necessarily now, but we don't know whether or not there is going to be a bulge of the cases coming in. So we need to really take the COVID pandemic very seriously and not look at it like a cough or a cold or some people saying it's just like the flu, because it's not. If you look at the mortality rate of the influenza virus, it's about 0.1%, right? So one in a thousand people will die. If you look at the COVID-19, the data that we got from the from Wuhan, it's about 1.4%. Now 1.4% best case scenario, 
That's 10 times. 10 times, uh, or to be more accurate, 14 times more virulent in terms of uh, virus. So it's not the same thing. So we should not treat it in the same way. And that's just the mortality rate. I'll get into why we need to really understand this pandemic really carefully because all of us are going to be affected by it. It doesn't matter which industry you're in. But also, we need to understand it from a healthcare perspective. Our friends, our family, our relatives are all, we all stand at risk of potentially catching it. And in some cases, potentially some people can fall really, um, fall really, really sick. And that's what we don't want to have happen because when you look at the whole concept of what's happening and flattening the curve, we just want to not have the entire healthcare system put under too much pressure. Because if you do that, then we're in serious trouble, real serious trouble. So let me just go back and talk about this little virus called COVID-19. So there's two reasons why it's, it's a little bit of a terror. The first reason is this. It's quite a hardy virus. It's very robust. In other words, it can live on surfaces for several hours and several days, 24 hours on cardboard and up to three days on plastic and steel. So what does this mean to us? Most viruses actually die when they're outside of the human host or animal host, so they can't survive. This virus can survive, meaning it can be transmitted on items over a prolonged period of time. So if somebody sneezes and touches a door handle, and two days later, another person comes, touches that door handle and potentially touches the face, they can get infected by it. Now we've not seen anything like it for a while, but that's just the first thing. The second thing is the people are asymptomatic for quite a while. So you're talking about seven days of not having any symptoms. And I'll, I'll, I'll bring this home by actually explaining what this means in terms of when the virus was first discovered. Being asymptomatic means you spread the virus without knowing. Most times when you have a cough or a cold, you, you get a bit of a sore throat. <clears throat> you can tell you're feeling under the weather and you're like, oh no, I'm coming down with something. And when you start sneezing, when you start coughing, then you tell people, listen, stay away from me. I'm not doing that great. I need to, you know, to stay away. Or you generally start to feel so unwell. You don't go out, you don't go to work, you don't go out and meet people. However, with the COVID-19 virus, what happened at the beginning was this. Doctors in Wuhan started to see this strange kind of pneumonia. And they were like, okay, this is, this is strange. People are really deteriorating fast. And they're coming in with very mild signs and symptoms, and then they just crash. And so they were like, okay, fine. So they tried to figure out where they were coming from. And then they realized it was coming from this wet market. And they're like, okay, so we've, we've got that. It's coming from the wet market. Okay, that's not great because we've seen this before, um, uh, animal to human transmission. But what actually got a lot of people in China, and China's quite a conservative country, what got them to sit upright was what it did after that. What they noticed was people were getting the same symptoms in cities in the same province one, 200 miles away. And they're like, okay, let's pay attention here. We have these symptoms here. We know it's come from this market. We know it's animal to human. Why is it in that region? 
And why has it spread so quickly in that region and people are falling sick? And then the penny dropped. The coronavirus had gone from animal to human. And I'll put this, I'll explain how this happened. So it goes from animal to human. So initially before that, human, animal to animal. And then it can go from animal to human. And that happens. We have a lot of conditions, tick bite fever, malaria, is spread from an animal to human. What made people freak out was this. It now started to spread from human to human. And this is so important in us understanding why we need to do what we need to do. The social distancing, the hand washing, the coughing to our sleeves. Because once it starts to spread from animal to human, then it's the equivalent of somebody saying now, you can catch malaria from somebody else. And the implications are vast. Meaning now, you don't just have to be at the coast or Kisumu to get malaria. If you flew to Nairobi and you have malaria, you can pass it on to other people. That's a very dangerous thing. And that's what the COVID virus started to do. To add on the fact that people were not showing signs and symptoms. So people were traveling and they didn't know what was going on. And then they went to a region five, seven days. And some people who were asymptomatic, they didn't even know they had a condition. They were still spreading it. And it spreads at an extremely fast rate for the reason I said. And also because of how fast it multiplies within the body. So this is not just a normal thing that people talk about um, in terms of an illness or a condition. This is the big one. This is what China, I think, had been preparing for for a long time. And when we look at China and we look at the, the, the cases in the Far East, we can't compare their methodology with ours because they've had so many different epidemics or viral epidemics. So they've trained for it. They've got protocols. They know exactly what to do, um, exactly how to handle it. And for them to react in this way, you'll understand how seriously they took it and that you'll understand now why we need to take it so seriously. Essentially, when they figured out, very quickly they were spreading from human to human now. In other words, now you're just having uncontrolled spread globally. They locked down a city of 11.8 million people in two days. So after they figured it out, bang, we're locking down the city. And they realized very quickly that if they don't put the entire province under lockdown, they're going to completely lose control. And they did that. And they did that right in the beginning. The reason I'm telling you this story is going to become evident in terms of what we need to be doing. That was in January of this year. That's when we started to see those videos flying around when everyone was like, oh, they're locking down. And I think we just did not understand the impact of what it was. Because they'd been here before, know this. They'd been here before, they understood it, they had the protocols, and they still were very, very anxious about it. It took them from January till last night, the 8th of April, 8th of April, to open Wuhan Airport. 8th of April. This is the first time now that they have released the lockdown in Wuhan. The rate only started to come down after 12 weeks when they said, now we are stable. So this is the impact of what happened in one country. And that's why in Italy, it just went like a wildfire. Right now in the US, there's 400,000 cases because they just, we just don't have infrastructure in the West to deal with it, as well as in Africa. So we're now talking about something that spreads very fast, something that can live on surfaces that's very robust, um, you know, for, for a long period of time. But why does this matter, right? Why does it matter to us? Because it's spreading very fast. It has got a high mortality rate. And if you all get it at the same time, the system will not cope.
the system will not cope. And that's essentially the whole concept of we need to flatten the curve. If you have uncontrolled, um, and I'll say this, if you have no social distancing, if you have no hand washing, then you will have the, what you call the, the big spike, right? Meaning a lot of people, potentially 60 to 70% of a population will get it within, I suppose, a few months. We don't know what it is, two, four, six months. But what that will do is that you now, when you look at the statistics around who gets it and what happens to them, that's when it gets scary. Let's say, let's take Kenya, population of about 50 million, give or take. So if you look at Kenya, population of 50 million, and you say over six month or eight month, whatever month period, two month period, we all get it at the same time. What you're looking at is that 80% of people will be fine. They'll have a mild illness, they continue on life. You've got 20% of people who, got, who will get a moderate to severe illness. In other words, they'll be down and out. They'll, be, they'll require hospitalization. They will need help and assistance. Severe. That's one in five people in a population. That's a huge number. Now, let's take out kids, okay? Because it's not affecting children as much. And we know we're quite a youth-heavy population. So take out kids and correct the numbers there. So you look at the adult population, potentially a much higher figure than 20% being taken out by this. Now, when you look at the mortality figures right now in the UK, they're a lot higher. Only because we're not testing as much. The mortality figures right now, 6,000 deaths with about 60,000 people affected. Quick math, 10%. 10% mortality rate from who we've tested. We know it's a lot lower than that. But that is still staggering. Of the people you've tested, 10% have died. It's, it's serious, right? We've got to understand that the numbers don't lie. So if you're looking at that kind of figure, and if you look at a population like Kenya, and you, let's go conservative, let's go 1.4, right? Let's, go, let's, let's take the theory of the TB vaccine having something to do with its spread. But let's go to 1.4%. That's about 800,000 people potentially dying within a six, seven month period. But more than that is that the stress on the healthcare system would not be sustainable. And that would have catastrophic effects. Because even though you're talking about mortality rate, and that again may seem so far, so far flung, you're talking about morbidity rates now. Morbidity is how is the is the sickness of a person, how sick you get. So mortality is the number of people who die, morbidity, the number of people who get severely sick to affect other people and themselves from working. Now if you look at that. If you look at 20% of people actually not being able to function, if you look at people who've got pre-existing conditions, immune disorders, immune suppression, diabetes, heart disease, all of that, throw all that in. Right now, just to put it into, to give you another example, um, the, the, the president of, of um, Nigeria had said that they had capacity for 100 ventilators, I think it was a few weeks back. There's a hospital in North London that's got 350 ventilators and they're nearly full up now. There's a whole, what we call the Excel Center in London that they've put in 4,000 beds just to deal with the spillover capacity of London. Now in North London, that's one hospital. There are probably about 15, 20 hospitals of that size and they have capacity and they're saying they're gonna hit, they're gonna reach maximum capacity. Other conditions don't stop. Appendicitis still happens, toothaches still happen. Pregnancies, I mean, sorry, deliveries, fractures, um, ulcers. People still will get admitted. Other illnesses don't go on annual leave. They're still going to be happening. So you're going to have a healthcare system that will need like 
potentially 2 million people who will need care in hospital, plus you have other conditions, it'll just seize up. It will totally seize up. And that's why we've got to flatten the curve. That's why we're having these discussions because the macro effects of what we do are profound. We need to understand our micro activities, our micro behaviors, our interpersonal relationships. Right now, you in front of your desk, your computer, your laptop, is gonna affect the economy at large. If you are somebody who is 25, 26, and you're like, yeah, you know what? It's not gonna hit me, I can handle it. That's fine, you may have had it. But if you pass it on to somebody else in your workplace who's looking after somebody who's vulnerable, or has got elderly parents, or you've got elderly parents and relatives, and they get it, you're now a conduit to it. And that's why we've got to understand our behavior really has to be in check. We have one vaccination. It's a physical vaccination. The vaccination is us. It's our behavior. A vaccine is there to prevent somebody from con contracting a condition or a disease. And that's why we've been talking about vaccines all this time. So we've got to understand that we are a vaccine in ourselves and our behavior. And once we start to wrap our mind around that, once we start to, to see that Actually, I've got a greater role, right, to society. I've got a greater role to my colleagues. They've got a role to me. I don't want three of them falling sick and I'm holding the reins in my department. Because if that's the case and they can't work, then I've got all the pressure at work. Same thing with them. If I do this to my family, if, I, if I'm the sole breadwinner and I'm irresponsible in my actions and I go down, you know, how people are going to survive, it's, it's, we're all literally, this is the cliche, we're all in together, we are all in together. It's not a lie. And once we start to understand that, then the memes, I think it's, it's I, I love the memes every single day because it brings a bit of light humor into our days because they're just so full of doom and gloom. But we've got to understand the memes and understand our behavior. It's cool to laugh at the memes. It's cool to for them. But I think what we've got to do is understand that if we don't do what we need to do, then we will not get our economy back on its feet. We will not get the global economy back on its feet. Because if China is still restricting people from flying in, and they started way back in January, we've just shut our airports, what, now in March? When are we gonna open up? Somebody asked me how long it's gonna take. I said, at best, 12 weeks, at best. And I'm not, I'm not being pessimistic because let's just assume right now, all the cases stop, right? We're at 180 and we stop, right? Not a single case happens from tomorrow. We're like, okay, it's done. Curve has been flattened, it's been extinguished. How long do you think the world economy is going to take to recover? For airports to open, for planes to get to where they need to be, for logistics to come back, for um, oil, gas supplies to, to start trading again in markets. That's going to take a while. So with all these things happening, every single company, country has to be aware that the impact of this is going to fundamentally shift everything. We're going to do things completely different from the way we did them at the beginning of this quarter. People talk about when things go back to normal. I don't think it is. I really don't. I don't think there's going to be a normal anymore. I think there's going to be a new normal. And the new normal is what will happen during this crisis. It's going to be what we did and how relevant you can be in this crisis and how adaptable. If, it, if you're talking about adaptability, I love the word innovation because everyone throws that word around. Um, a lot and like, you know, let's innovate. I mean, this is the time to super innovate because some industries will disappear. We'll wake up from this, I don't know, four, 
two, three, four, six months down the line. And you just realize, oops, they're gone. Oh, they're gone. Oh, where did they come from? And that's going to be the world. Because how m- I would never imagine that school systems are totally shut for literally half a year because of a viral infection. That would never have imagined. So we need to now reimagine everything. Because what we think is going to happen, just think of yourself eight weeks ago. Or let's think of yourself January 1st. We had all these resolutions, right? Three months down the line, everything's changed. Absolutely everything has changed. So don't think that in three months' time, things are going to stay the same as today. They're going to shift again. So we now have to realize that what we're going through is what I consider a real inflection in the curve of mankind. We're going to change a lot of things how we do them. We're going to change medications, vaccinations, all those things are going to be front and center. It doesn't mean doom and gloom. It doesn't mean doom and gloom. What it means is that we just need to recognize, be cognizant of what's going on, understand that, yes, we're going to get through this. We're all going to be, not all of us, some of us, unfortunately, will lose their lives. But we're going to get through this. But it's going to be a new world, a different way of thinking, a different way of doing things. I've never had so many meetings on Zoom before. This stock price must be through the roof. Um, and, you know, Microsoft Teams, same thing. Everyone's doing things differently. People are signing off on meetings now. They're not saying, well, let's meet face-to-face, send me a proposal. It's like, quick, done. Healthcare, telemedicine, it was a novelty. We've got a, a, a Dow Daktari. Our calls are through the roof now. Whereas before, everyone's like, mm, not really sure this is going to work. Well, let's see how it goes. That's shifted. That's changed. Education, online learning. There's a chi- company uh, in China right now that even in the midst of this has just had its valuation go to a billion dollars because people are going on the platform. They understand that education can be done differently. And these are the things that are going to start happening. The financial sector. Um, somebody told me, gave me an example of, um, and I'm going to go to the clinical stuff. Somebody gave me an example of the fact that deliveries were niche, right? Like Jumia was niche. Like if you had a little bit of spare cash, you'd use it. Deliveries now are going to become essential. In other words, someone's going to figure out in this period of time how to get food to you conveniently, quickly, and do the cash transaction. And once you buy from one person, you're hooked. It's like you open a bank account in one bank, you literally stay with it for 10, 20 years. Whoever figures that out, is going to figure out how to feed people in a totally different way. And already we're seeing it. I mean, you're getting probably e-flyers and vegetable deliveries. All that is happening because of what's going on. So the world has to adapt. So all these things that are happening are, are things that are positive as well, but they're uncertain, so they create a little bit of anxiety. Uh, we are in an anxious, anxious time, but we need to do the things that we feel we have control over. What do we have control over? ourselves and our behavior. That's the thing. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the self-enlightenment at the top, right? And his food, shelter, clothing right at the bottom. Now guess what? We've dropped down. The things people think about now are food, shelter, clothing. That's what some people not minds. I went out yesterday to do a bit of food shopping in the evening. There was a queue of about 60 people outside the shopping center, all quietly queuing, all six feet from each other at seven o'clock at night. And now you understand the anxiety in a first world country of people trying to buy simple things like food. Holidays, cars, 
gone such to the back seat now, no one's talking or thinking about them. So these are the sort of things that happen in times of crisis. So what can we do? Two things. We can do two things very, very clearly. We can socially distance ourselves from people and others or physically distance ourselves and we can do the hand hygiene. Those two things are critical because if we don't understand why they're critical, what I've been talking about for the last 22 minutes will happen. If we do them, right? Now, I'm not bringing in factors like um, will it spread this, this, this social, economic and geographic factors that you know happen, but we live in a metropolitan city Nairobi and what's happened in a lot of other cities unless something really unique is going to happen in Africa the chances are it's going to follow if it's happening in Iran if it's happening in other countries I, that are hot I don't see why it wouldn't happen if it doesn't happen thank God really I'm so serious thank God if it doesn't happen but if it does we need to brace ourselves but we can do something about it hand washing is so critical to all of this Every single thing I've talked about boils down to washing our hands and distancing ourselves from each other. But I'll start off with the personal things. Hand washing is critical because the viral particle has got a lipid capsule. In other words, the outside is made out of fat. That fat is so easily broken down by soap. You think of your hands when you're eating yamachoma or chicken wings, they're greasy. If you're going to wash your hands and you just wash them or use a Kleenex, they're still going to be greasy. So you've got to use like almost two pumps of soap or wash it, rinse it, and then do it again. Now, that whole process is the same process we're seeing when you wash your hands. You've got to get rid of the viral particles from your hands because that is the quickest way to transmit it to somebody else if you're not within distance of them. So washing your hands is critical for you transmitting, but also for you when you touch surfaces from, from contacting it. And this is how it works. We've got our eyes, our nose, and our mouth. Those three openings are how the COVID virus will get into a body. It's as simple as that. It doesn't go through skin. There's no proof about sweat, maybe in tears, we're not sure. It's not sexually transmitted. It is through these three orifices. And this is what we need to protect. We'll talk about masks in a bit. I've seen some questions coming out already. Let me make sure I'm not going way too far, okay? Um, I've seen some questions coming on and we'll talk about that. But wash your hands because if you don't wash your hands, the chance of transmission to yourself is very high. Also, transmit it to other people. Using sanitizer, same thing. Hand washing and sanitizer, I'm not gonna go and talk about the two. There's enough videos out there, but it's the same concept. You need to get the virus off you. Which brings me to the next thing. You need to cough into tissue or into your sleeve. Because when we talk, saliva particles jump or fly about one meter away. If we're very, very enthusiastic in how we speak, right? So if you're talking and you're enthusiastically speaking and someone's standing close to you, because generally we, we will be speaking to somebody close by, those viral particles are flying across. If we cough, those viral particles are going potentially three to five meters. Now, if you think about that, if you sneeze, it's an uncontrolled spray of all those particles. There's no way to control it unless you actually cough or sneeze into your elbow or into tissue. If you sneeze into your hand, yes, you can control it, but then now you're just gonna take all of that 
and put it all over the place. Because people will sneeze once and go wash their hands. You'll sneeze and you'll be like, oh, okay, maybe wipe it on your pants. And then you get on. And that is, that's crazy. So we need to understand that the coughing and the sneezing is stopping this violent spraying of all these viral particles. Because you can have a cold and have COVID-19. So now you're just an even greater spreader of it. Because the COVID-19 virus gets into your body and starts to replicate straight away. The DNA and the RNA get injected into your cells and stops to replicate. And the estimates are in about 24 hours, you look at about 10,000 particles replicated. 48 hours, you're looking at that number doubling. By the end of a week, they're talking about a million particles that have actually been produced in your lungs. Now you could be symptomatic or asymptomatic. If you're symptomatic, you don't even know it. You're just talking and spraying it all over the place. That's why you really need to be careful about the sneezing and the coughing. We'll talk about the social distancing in a bit. The third thing is touching your face. You really need to avoid touching your face because as I mentioned, if you touch a door handle, you touch a surface, somebody comes gives you a glass of water in a meeting, you take a sip, put it down, you do that, boom. If that glass was contaminated, you've literally just self-inoculated in a second, just from touching a glass that somebody's handed to you. And that's why we need to understand all these things now change. We need to change our behavior because we need to change our behavior in terms of how we, what we do at work, what we do in meetings, what we do with clients, what we do when we're doing sales, when we're doing presentations. If you're going, I don't think anyone's doing presentations now in lecture theaters and stuff like that. So we don't need to go there. But just that concept of touching your face means you're bringing the virus into your space. You do this in your nose, that's it. As simple as that, if you had it on your hands and you do this, it transmits and that's why it's moving so fast globally. That's why. People are asking, why is it moving so fast? Simply that. Those three things, washing hands, how we cough and how we sneeze, and how we touch our face are the three critical things. As a person, nobody can come and tell you how to do that. It's just, behavioral change, self-discipline, and how you get there. So the next thing is social distancing. And social distancing is quite literally staying six feet or two meters away from somebody because of that concept of saliva spreading when you talk. That's the concept of social distancing. There's a lot in terms of politics and policy when we're talking about masks. And there's a question of masks, so I wouldn't jump into it now, but I'll explain the things we need to understand about masks. But the one thing we can do physically, there's a, there's a crazy video I saw the other day of, I'm not sure if it is enacted, of um, this uh, Maasai guy, like <laughs> whipping guys saying, you're not one meter, right? Uh, it was hilarious, but you know what? They were sitting there totally oblivious. And we're in the middle of this. I'm not sure when it was made, but they're sitting next to each other and until it becomes taboo to be next to somebody, we will just keep doing it because we're social creatures and that's why physical distancing has come in. Right now it is taboo in London. You walk down the street, you see people walking down like this and they kind of just go like that, right? Almost like they form an invis invisible bubble around each other because on the street there's things that, you know, don't be closer than six feet. There's markers on the, on the street, in the supermarket. We, I've seen that as well. So our behavior has to change and it's not a broken record. My fear is that we sometimes will get too complacent because you've heard something so much and you're thinking, why do you need to do that? Why do you need to be six feet? That saliva sprays what we're preventing. 
The fact that even if it doesn't get into your eyes and you do this, and you had a few particles here, you've self-inoculated. If you self-inoculate and you go home, you could be asymptomatic for seven days. Your auntie may visit. You may have your parents living with you who are in the 60s, 70s. They get it. You don't even know you've got it. They start to fall sick. These are the implications of what happens if we go and don't check these behaviors. Because when you look at the three places, we don't have, we've got three lives. We've got friends, okay, I'll say friends and family. Then you've got work. Then you've got the people who you hang out with. Right now with social distancing, those three lives are all one. If you're not social distancing at home with your friends and with your relatives, and you come to work and now you've got all the sanitizers and doing all the stuff, you are potentially putting your colleagues at risk. Because now there's somebody who could be a single mother, got three kids, she cannot afford to fall sick. Now that person could be put at risk because now you're thinking, well, I'm young, I, I'm not feeling unwell, and you don't socially distance on the weekend, you bring that into the office and somebody falls sick. And vice versa. If you're doing things meticulously at home and somebody else is not doing it um, at their home, same thing can happen. Or if you do stuff at home and you don't do it in the office and you're not practicing and you let's say you're working with a lot of people and clients and inevitably coming into contact with several people in a day, you need to be so aware that at every single point, wherever you are, if somebody does not exist in your bubble, and by your bubble I mean this, your immediate family, kids, spouse, not flatmates. Flatmates, they're not part of your bubble. Those are people you live with but they are interacting with their friends and their family more intimately than you are. So they'll be a flatmate, but they'll go to them, visit the siblings, and when they're there, they're interacting with them. So your immediate bubble is your immediate family. If you've got people who you live with, just be aware. Don't, you can't socially distance in a flat or with your, with, your, with your flatmates, but you've got to be aware that all of you need to be behaving responsibly. I never thought I'd be having these kind of conversations because it, it sounds like such a weird thing to be doing that, to be saying these things. But if we don't say, we're gonna have this bulge. We're gonna have this bulge and we don't want to have people falling sick at the same time with the health service not being able to cope. Already we are seeing the disaster globally. Without a single bullet being fired, everything has ground to a halt. So we've got this invisible enemy that is shifting everything that we do. And if you look at the amount of resources required, I'll give you an example of what happened in um, Wuhan. Day three, day three after the lockdown. So lockdown happened, first human-to-human transmission, day three. They mobilized 42,000 healthcare practitioners from China. Fine, they are, they've got a population of a billion people, but they got 42,000 people to come into work. Within 10 days, had built a hospital and this was with a hospital with very sophisticated equipment to cater for respiratory collapse they built another hospital with 2600 beds within the first three weeks that's the kind of machinery that china has to mobilize in a pandemic we just don't have it it's just so simple we don't have that kind of machinery if we go into a state of a pandemic then we will really, really struggle. So we've got to do these things, even though they sound really dumb and really crazy, and we're going into Easter now. So, got Good Friday. It's gonna be a funny Easter, because no one's traveling. 
Everyone's on lockdown. But people now are going to start to get still crazy. They're going to be like, oh, I'll visit so-and-so, I'll visit so-and-so. And all these little interactions. I, I, I'm not sure if this is um, my friend exaggerating, but somebody yesterday sent me a text message and said, they're in a mall in Nairobi and it's business as usual. People are still walking around casually, a couple with their kids, you know, because they're all working from home. And there's a sense of like, it's not really here because we're not seeing the bodies dropping like the video we saw from, you know, from China. But it's potentially, we know it's there. We know it's, it's in Kenya. It's when it spreads or how it spreads is going to be the thing. And we just don't want to test it. Let's not be the one, the population that said, oops, we knew, but uh, you know what? Sorry, that's just going to be silly. So let's try our best to try and do these things. If, if it's proven, there's almost a sense of bravado. Well, somebody, uh, I read an article, a sense of bravado of saying, it won't get us. It, it just won't get us. And if it doesn't get us, then yeah, see, we told you. There's that kind of sense that of some people feeling that way. Why take the risk? Why take the risk? Because if it hits us, then we just, we'll just decimate our, our healthcare system for no reason. So let's just do what everyone's saying we should do. Um, the WHO, all the top healthcare um, advisory bodies globally are saying, and we'll be able to kind of shift this. Now, I know I've been talking flat for 45 minutes, and I'm going to stop now because I could go on and on, but I think what we need to do is get into the questions because um, I think there's a lot. Yeah, there are quite a few. So let me jump into there. So here we go. Um, first question that we've got here. So I hope, before I jump into the question, I just hope that, um, that I've got you guys thinking. I've got you guys thinking about what this means, right? What this means in every aspect of your life. What this means in terms of your work, your job, your employment, your friends, your family, the healthcare system, the people right now who, God bless them, they, they're queuing up for food. It's, it was a friend of mine, he works for Getty Images, and he's just sent me a whole bunch of images that one of the photographers took of people queuing up for food because they can't work because the markets have been shut. Um, and this, I think, is just the preamble to what could potentially happen. Three weeks of this is going to be tough. So we need to play a role, if we're privileged enough not to be having to queue up for food, to be given handouts, to be at least responsible enough to say, look, this stuff matters. You know, people are queuing up for food. The, the least I can do is make sure I wash my hands, I sanitize, I stay one, more than one meter, two meters away from people when I'm talking to them. I stay at home if necessary. It's just a weekend. For some people, it's their life, right? So this is, this is the whole empathetic humanitarian side of this. It's making us think about other people now. Because the longer we're in a lockdown, the longer they suffer. So it's not now just about us and our, you know, our gadgets and, and working, the people out there who are really going to struggle you know, from day to day. If companies who are, have got billion dollar caps are laying off people, how do they expect somebody to have savings when the person works from day to day? That's just not the reality on the ground. So let's play our part. Let's play our part. I'm not a crusade. I'm not on any kind of crusade. I'm just trying to get us to think now, real thinking about what we need to do. So boom, let's go into questions. Okay, so um, here we go. Initially, we went, I'll, I'll do this anonymously, by the way. So um, um, we don't, I'm not going to name and shame. So please just put all your questions there. Um, initially, we were informed that masks only help if you already had COVID-19. Now everyone is advised to get a mask. <laughs> What's the reason for the change? Okay. Uh, 
Great question to start off with, and I bet you people have asked that. So you're right. Masks are for four groups of people. Healthcare practitioners, hands down. Nurses, doctors in the front line right now need them. I've got a lot of friends and colleagues in the front line here, and it's tough. It's, it's rough out here because people um, who are really strong are breaking down. They're having to make such big decisions for other people's lives. But what people are not talking about is their lives. There's a consultant, anesthetist, who every day when he leaves home, he thinks that's potentially the last time he'll see his wife and his kid. Because if he picks it up and he has to go into self-isolation, he says he's not willing to drive back in and self-isolate with them because the chances of picking up quite a big viral load are very high. Also, a lot of clinicians, nurses and doctors now actually are dying from it. So you have, I think, I think if I'm not wrong, in Italy there were 66 doctors and nurses died. In England, I think we've had about seven or eight. So it's real. So when someone's going to work, they're thinking, I could go to work and die. I practice surgery through HIV even in South Africa, never once did I think I'm going to die. And we had a lot of patients who had HIV, who HIV positive, but never once was I thinking, oh gosh, this is, you know, I'm going to die from this. People are thinking that. And then they're exhausted emotionally, physically, right? And so we've got all these things that are happening in the healthcare system. So let's support them. Let's give them the PPE that they require. So they need it. So that's, that's my take um, on, on, on masks. Now, the other thing, group of people is if you've got a cough, a temperature, or you've been diagnosed with COVID-19, absolutely, you need to be wearing a mask and you need to be self-isolating. So you shouldn't be wandering around the streets, um, hanging out with your friends because you've got a cough and temperature. Wear a mask, stay indoors. If you've got signs and symptoms for seven days, you're indoors, self-isolated. If someone in your family has got a cough, you need to be indoors for 14 days. That's what self-isolation is. Next group is people who are vulnerable with pre-existing conditions. So somebody's got diabetes, hypertension. You could be living with your auntie, your mother, your grandmother, and they have got a pre-existing condition. They need to wear a mask, okay? If you are looking after them, right, then you need to wear a mask. So if you walk into a room, going to say hello, wear a mask because you're protecting them. Those are the four groups that <clears throat> we have said there's evidence, documented evidence they should wear a mask. Now, let's go into what's going on in terms of your question. It is, lots of governments, lots of countries have said, you need to wear a mask. Yes, wear a mask. I'm not saying no. However, there's such a variation in the types of masks people wear. So there's cloth masks, there's sponge masks, there's the, obviously there's N95 for healthcare workers, there's the surgical masks, and then there's different types of surgical masks. Why I'm saying this is really, really important because it's not the mask that's going to be your biggest protection. It's your social distancing and your hand washing and you're not touching your face that are the biggest protective factors. Your mask is such a small protective factor if you are not doing those other things. The mask is just a layer. It is just a layer. It is not what's going to protect you. Hand washing and social distancing will protect you so much more. And I'll, I'll break it down so it kind of makes sense. So if you think about a mask, right? Remember in the beginning I mentioned that if you have, um, if you're speaking next to somebody and you've got it in your hands 
or somebody's next to you and you touch your face, you're touching three places, nose, mouth, and eyes. And your eyes are a mucous membrane. Your eyes actually are in direct view or sight of somebody talking to you. If you're wearing a mask and they're not, everything they're saying, all the saliva is potentially going through your eyes and you can get COVID-19 through your eyes. It's well documented. So you are not protected if you're not doing the social distancing with a mask. So you can have the mask and if someone's standing next to you and they don't have a mask and they're talking, you get it. That's one layer. The second thing is touching your face. If you have a mask, you will touch and adjust your face. I practiced surgery for many years, you will touch your face. It's very hard not to, because you're going to adjust it. You're going to adjust the straps. And the worst thing is to do, to do is to touch the front of your face. Because if you touch the front of your face now, which could be potentially contaminated, then now you're touching and transferring it to surfaces or to your face. If you keep touching your face and you do this by mistake with your hands, and you've got a mask, waste of time. Absolute waste of time. And the thing about it is, once we understand that, then if you're not comfortable wearing a mask for hours on end, and I'll give an example. When, we, when I was doing surgery, right? You'd go and start operating. You'll scrub up, do everything, you're sterile. And 10 minutes into the operation, you start to want to itch your face. And you can't especially if it's within your mask, you just have to get over that itch. So you train your mind and your body just decide that itch, I'm not gonna itch it. And it goes away. But we found it so hard, just for two hours, just for two hours to not touch your face because your hands are sterile. Now, if somebody is walking around the street, you're definitely touching your mask. You're gonna be doing this, you're gonna do this, you're gonna adjust it if it's hot, if it's sweaty. That touching of the face is really not good. So if you're wearing masks and you're told by law you've gotta wear a mask, wear it, but have to, have to not touch your face because you're just wasting your time with the mask and you're just transmitting it. So masks are important for those four groups of people, but you have to understand that you still have to stand um, uh, two meters away from somebody. You still have to wash your hands. You still have to not touch your face. And the chances are you will touch your face a lot more with a mask. So you've got to be careful of that. So I'm not saying, I'm not going against government directives or what's going on, understand the facts and understand that that is a protective layer, but it is not the only one. It's the last one, and potentially the most minor of all the layers. But if it's policy, you've got to do it. But understand those things and tell your friends and families. Okay, um, next question. Could one have only one symptom, um, i.e. flu, yet still be positive? Totally, absolutely. You can have one symptom um, of a cough and have, well, we normally say a fever because your body's mind to no response. You can have one symptom of a fever. See, I just touched my face. Um, one symptom of fever, or just start off with a cough, and the fever starts later. So you can't discount it. However, don't get paranoid. Don't get paranoid about it because it will drive you crazy. Every single time you have a symptom of a bit of a scratchy throat, you think you've got it. When we first went in lockdown three weeks ago, so it's been three weeks for us now, every time I felt a bit of a hoarseness to my voice, I'd be like, oh, hang on, is that it? Or if I felt a bit hot, is that it? And every single thing, you will start and you'll feel like that in the beginning, but then it's you realize, no, it's not. Um, but that's also why we've got the Dada Tari line, just to call a doctor if you're concerned. Give us a call, we'll help you out with the symptoms that you've got. Okay, so if somebody has a chronic condition, e.g. diabetes, does building up immunity, e.g. taking zinc, orange supplement, ginger, um, actually help? 
yes, any kind of um, vitamin ingestion at this time is great. Why? Two things. We're probably eating worse than we've ever eaten. I know my diet is not the best because you're eating what's there. But also, we are more stressed. We're more stressed out now. So immune system is probably not as robust. We all know when you're not, when you're really working hard, you've got targets and deadlines, you tend to get coughs and colds and headaches and flus. That happens. So taking those supplements will help you fight. They will not cure. So anyone saying, take this, it's a cure, I would not listen to that advice until we've got an official statement from the WHO, from the government, from whoever it is that this is working. But yes, absolutely, take them. I think, don't don't go crazy. <laughs> don't, don't overdose um, on them, but they would definitely help, especially if you've got things like diabetes. When, kids, when say kids are not highly affected, is that the recovery, is it that the recovery is quick? That they recover at the same time and same rate, but do not recover? I know. Is it the recovery is quick? That they recover at the same rate, but they do recover? Or what do you mean exactly? What age, even below two years? Okay, interesting question. I had to read it twice just to figure out what it was. Yes, everybody gets affected. Some people just don't get really bad symptoms. And thank goodness that kids don't get it badly because we know the immune systems are still developing. So in terms of the age, we don't know what age. We just know most children under the age of 15 tend to have this protection. Having said that, there's one child who's died who's 13. But we think that that's an anomaly. That's not the norm because kids have been in school for quite a while here. In fact, schools only closed three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Yeah. What are we, Thursday? Yeah, two and a half weeks ago. And kids were in school and they, they can't social distance kids. They're just going to be all over each other, you know. But no, kids weren't getting sick. They weren't getting the pneumonia. So there's some protective cover over kids. Um, in terms of the, requ- the recovery, they may get a cough and a temperature and that could just be it. And it goes. However, if they've got it, they could be potentially passing it on to you. You may have a worse effect. Now, we know as you get older, this is the weird thing about COVID-19, the symptoms get worse. Normally, we look at the flu being something that affects people in their 70s and 80s really badly. So I've got three, three examples of people who've had it. I've got my brother-in-law. He runs marathons, right? He has it right now, and he can't get out of bed. He just can't get out of bed. It, he feels horrible, aching, paining, sweating. There's a friend of mine who's a doctor. He had it. Worst flu he's ever had in his entire life. And he's, 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 done, he's had a lot of you know, illnesses working in hospitals, but he said this was the worst one. And there's another personal friend who said, he had it and I was speaking to him on the phone and he was just like, it's been seven, 10 days. I'm, I'm actually getting depressed now because I cannot even get up to go to the toilet. It's such, such an effort to be able to do that. So these things are, are examples. These are, these are examples of people who are in their 40s in the 50s, we know it's worse. In 60s, we know it's worse. You know, Boris, uh, the prime minister, is in hospital in intensive care. He's 55. He's had a massive bad bout. So that's just an indication of how severe it happens with age. So with children, we know they're protected. So we, we feel that's a great thing because then that would just make things triply worse. Um, okay, so I hope I've answered all the questions. Is that they recover quickly? Yep, they recover. And um, same rate of recovery, no, adults take a lot longer. 
Okay, so um, is the contagion only through droplets or is it airborne too? Good technical question. Um, I'll answer it and I'll say why it's probably not relevant to what we're doing. It can be, it is droplet spread. However, if they have found their cases where people have had nebulizers and they've had, because nebulizers compressed air and, it's, and they've found that they've, there's particles in the air after that. Now, these are in hospital settings. The particles have also not been proven to be infected particles. They've just found parts and bits of the viral RNA and DNA when they've gone and they looked at the room much later. So the person is sitting, getting nebulized, and there's high pressure coming through. When you look at, sorry, I'm just going to switch off my WhatsApp desktop because it's buzzing off. So, so that's where the whole concept of airborne comes in. Technically, it's not airborne in the sense that if you're sitting here in your cough and then it blows over to your neighbors, then they're going to catch it. We know this because in Germany and in Norway and in Singapore, where they did really good contact tracing and they got people to, um, to self-isolate, they won't find the people in a whole building were catching it because they had it. Now, they, they've talked about people on cruise ships and what's happening on cruise ships. Those are completely different studies um, that have not necessarily been verified because that's one cruise ship. But when you look at studies from different places, then you know we, we think it could potentially be, but it's not the, mo the main mode of transmission of it. It's droplet, that's the main mode. Okay, right, okay. What do you reckon would be the reason why the government of Kenya is still dragging the feet before during complete lockdown, given the merits of a lockdown as an intervention to enforce social distancing? Um, so that's, that's a, it's a good question, but it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I don't envy the job of the CES, Matai um, Kawe. Um, it's, it's a tough job because you've got to balance socioeconomic implications with the medical ramifications of this. And we all probably just kind of know that. If you do complete lockdown and you're saying, you know, everyone stops moving, certain economies can survive it. Certain economies can't. Even in Wuhan, which, you know, a lot of people, they, they said, I'm not sure if this is verified, people died of starvation. People um, got into... Um, into care homes and died because they weren't getting food and water. So we've got to balance um, what they're doing. And no government has take, takes a lockdown lightly. Even when they did it here, everybody was saying, why is Boris Johnson not doing it? You need to do it now. You need to lock down this country. And he was like, I'm going to think twice because once you go on lockdown, you can't unlock it and go back on lockdown again. You just can't do that. So you want to do things in stages. Because if you do it and try and do it again, you will get mass resistance from the population and you won't be able to control it. So you want to do things incrementally so you can also look at the data of who's getting sick. But at the same time, you don't want people suddenly to go from full freedom to complete lockdown because then there's mental health issues. I've not even touched on mental health. And look, we've been at it for about an hour already. Mental health issues will just spiral and go through the roof. Um, social unrest will just go through 